Turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Jonah for the next two weeks. We'll be looking at Jonah 1 and 2 today and 3 and 4 next week. Uh, if you have a hard time finding Jonah, if you can find Daniel, then you go to the right, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Have you ever had an enemy in your life or just somebody that you didn't like? Somebody that you didn't want to be around? Somebody that when you were in their presence, um, you would either be tempted to be fearful or tempted to get angry? Well, I once had a roommate in the Air Force. His name was Rick. And I was a brand new Christian. So I spent a lot of time talking to Rick and kind of opening up and telling him about all the things I was going through as a new Christian and also giving him the gospel. Well, I don't think he liked that. Uh, and Rick, I don't think, liked me because of that. So one day we're on the top of a two-and-a-half-ton truck, forklifts bringing tents to us, four of us. We're on the top of all these tents, about 15 feet in the air, and we're all joking around, four of us having a good time, you know, loading these tents. They're huge tents, you know, the kind that are on MASH in the, movie, the show MASH, unloading, I mean, loading these tents. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Rick gets mad and throws me to the ground. You know, I'm kind of like, what? And he's ready to slug me, and I grab his wrist and hold on to him for dear life because I'm thinking we're going to roll off the top of this truck and we're going to fall 15 feet to the ground, and that would be ugly, right? It's not the fall that hurts you. It's the sudden stop, right? Well, um... Second later, a couple of the sergeants grab Rick and pull him off of me, and everything's fine. But what do you think would happen if five minutes after that event occurred, if God would have impressed on me to give Rick the gospel? What do you think my response would have been? Do you think I may have said... Tempted to be hesitant? Or maybe even tempted to say, no, God. You know, this guy, he almost threw me off a truck. You know, he could have killed me. This guy doesn't like me. He's not very nice. I got to put up with him. He's going to be my, you know, he's my roommate. You know, he's my enemy. Why would I want to give him the gospel. You can imagine, those were some of the things that were going through the mind of Jonah when he's called to proclaim the gospel to his enemies. Let's look at the first 
point of this sermon, which is God's plan. It's in verses 1 and 2. This is the Word of God. It says, The Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God's plan for Jonah is to proclaim to them God's plan to judge them because of their wickedness. And the time of this call can be seen, keep your fingers here in Jonah, can be seen in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. Turn there with me, 2 Kings 14. And this is the time of Jeroboam II, who reigned from 793 B.C. to 753. And during his reign, Israel enjoyed territorial expansion at the expense of Syria. So look at this passage, 2 Kings 14, 23. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And that's who we're talking about. And he reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, his father, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amnitai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hafer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. So we see here, we see here God blessing Israel, despite their sin, despite their leader's sin. He blesses them with population growth, with territorial expansion, with commercial activity. And it appears that they're blessed by God. So how should they have responded to this blessing? Well, they should have responded. They should have been responded by humility because they, they should have seen God was being merciful to them. But instead, but instead, like their leader, they became arrogant and self-righteous. Now think about this. God had put Israel, God had put Judah right in the center of the world. Right in the center of the world. I mean, everything went through them. I mean, you had Egypt in the south, you had Assyria in the northeast, all the trade, all these countries all around them. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to be a witness to the world. They were supposed to be an influence to the world for God. But instead of being an influence for God, they were influenced by the idols all around them. With the nations all around them. And thus they lost their influence for God in the world. In fact, 30 short years later, in 722 B.C., Israel was taken over because of their sins before God. And you know, when I think of Israel, 
I think of our own country. I think of our own country. We have been around, <laughs> and it was amazing, I did the math on this. Uh, in fact, I was a bicentennial high school graduate, right? Seven, 1776, I, I graduated in 1976. 200 years, right? It's been 244 years now. Wow! God has blessed us. Do you all agree? Heads? God has blessed our nation greatly. He has blessed us materially. He has blessed us spiritually. He has blessed us in every which way you can think. And with those blessings, there's many times a temptation. And there's a temptation many times in prosperity to fall into the trap of materialism, which can cause us to slumber in our own comfort and to forget about God. You know, to think we're blessed because of all the things we've done as a country. Another trap of prosperity is we begin to focus so much on ourselves that we forget about others, and we forget about other nations around us. We get comfortable. And this is one of the things that in this book that God is trying to get across to Jonah is that he is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. He is the God of the whole world. You know, John's 3.16, you all know that, right? It says, for God so loved the what? World. He loved the world. Now that does not mean that everybody in the world is going to become a Christian. You all know that, right? But it means that he is going to choose some from every tongue, tribe, and nation in the world. God loves the Chinese. God loves the Russians. He loves the North Koreans. He loves us, right? He loves his church. He loves his church. Listen, listen to this quote about how small our nation is compared to the rest of the world, but how blessed we are. Listen to this. It says this. If we could shrink the world's population to a village of 100 people with all the existing ratios remaining the same, it would look like this. Population, 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 from the Western Hemisphere, including North and South America, and eight from Africa. 51 would be female. 49 would be male. 70 would be non-white, while 30 would be white. 66 non-Christian and 33 Christian. 80 would live in substandard housing. 70, listen to this, 70, Denise, you got to, 70 would be unable to read. Wow. Half, half would suffer from malnutrition. One would be near death and one would be near birth. Only one would have a college education. Only one. Half of the entire village's wealth would be in the hands of only six 
people, and all six would be citizens of the United States. That's amazing, isn't it? That's how blessed we are. And that's how blessed Israel was in 760 B.C. And I'm sure God is not doing that to promote us to arrogance, but to be humble, to be dependent upon Him, to strive to be an influence to the rest of the world through the proclamation of the gospel. Well, that's what God wanted Jonah to do. He wanted him to go to Assyria. But what was Jonah's response? Well, let's look at point two, which is Jonah's perplexing run. Look at verse three. It says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, this would be shocking to any Jewish reader. This would be perplexing to them. How could a man of God, how could a prophet of God run from God? That would be crazy. And this is the only prophet in the Bible to do this. Why would he do this? Well, look at where God was calling him to go. The Assyrians were Israel's arch enemy. It would be like God telling me to go speak the gospel to Rick after him almost throwing me off a truck, right? Um, the Assyrians were a ruthless people. They were a ruthless people, and especially when it came to warfare. Uh, if they had a motto, it would be this, give up or else. Give up or else we're going to commit atrocities. You know what they were known for? Putting fish hooks in their, in their captives' mouths and pulling them with you know, a chain of fish hooks to captivity. Can you imagine that? Watching your family being pulled off with fish hooks in their mouth. That's what they did. They were ruthless. They were a ruthless, wicked people. Now, Jonah was not only influenced probably with that, but he was also influenced with the idea that he wanted God to be Israel's God. And we see that all throughout the Bible. You know, especially in the New Testament, don't we? When the gospel is, is starting to come out, um, what do the Jews do? They say, no, this is for us. It's not for the Gentiles. Gentiles are a bunch of dogs. They don't deserve the gospel. We do. We're the only ones. We're God's people. We're God's people. So Jonah takes off running. He takes off running. And you know what's amazing? He goes, he goes to the farthest place possible, almost, that he could go. He goes to Tarshish. You know where Tarshish is? Most think that Tarshish, Tarshish was a city in Spain. Now, if you looked on the back of your Bibles, you, you see pictures of the Mediterranean Sea. They usually only give you half of the Mediterranean Sea because that's most of what happened in the Bible, right? 
We're talking Tarshish is on the other side of the Mediterranean. I mean, it's on the other side of the world for them. On, on the other side of Spain was the Atlantic Ocean. You know, that, that's where you fall off the end of the world, right? Back then. That's what many thought. So, so Jonah runs as far possible. And, and for, for a Jewish mind in those days, many of them thought of God being in his temple. So he was fleeing from the presence of God, not thinking about the omnipresence of God, right? And so the physical distance was a long way. But also, if you look at the passage, there's also a metaphorical distance. When you look at verse 3, it says, he went down to Joppa. And then in verse 5, it says he went down into the ship. And then in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, it says he went down into the depths of the sea. So each one, metaphorically, is saying he's getting further and further and further away from God. How many of you... When you were a little kid, ran away from home. How many of you ran away from home when you were a little kid, five years old? Come on. Come on, admit it. All right, all right. How many of you did your parents immediately come after you? <laughs> I'm not going to put my hand up. They let me go for a while. <laughs> How many of you did your parents come after you right away? They didn't worry about me because I went, you know, with my little knapsack on a stick, you know, the hobos. I went to the edge of the yard. That's about as far as I got, you know. So they weren't, they weren't too worried. Um, but God parents us in a similar way. When, when his prophet runs away like Jonah did, he immediately reacts and sends a storm to get his prophet back, Okay? But then, in the story of the, the prodigal son in Luke 15, the father, who is represented by God, right, allows the son to leave home. And though the father, the father doesn't chase after the son, he waits for the hardships of the son's own choices to bring him back so that he returns home. Whether actively or passively, God's goal is always the same. He works to lovingly restore us back to the fold through repentance. You know, and that, that should make us feel that should make us feel real secure being God's children. You know, because when we wander, He comes after us like a shepherd. You know, for the sheep. And even if we run, we will never run outside of his hold on us if we are his. Listen to what John 10, 29 says. It says, My Father who has given them unto me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. Psalm 30, 139, 7 through 10 um, 
It says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Wow. Our God loves us. Our God loves us. Maybe you feel like Jonah this morning. Maybe you feel like Jonah this morning. And you have somebody that you really don't get along with. You know, you, you might be angry with them. It might be, it might be even somebody in your own family. It might be your spouse. You might be thinking of this person as your enemy. You know, they're, they're not so nice. They're very rude. They're crude and socially unacceptable. You might not want them around your kids because they might have a bad influence on them. Do you know somebody like that? Do we understand that when we think of things like that, that we're doing almost the same thing that Jonah did. Except we're not physically running, but we're running on the inside. We're saying, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to share with them the gospel. It might, it might be, you know, we might even be thinking about a, another country who's, in a sense, our enemy and people in another country that we consider our enemy and say, those people don't deserve the gospel. And one of the greatest things that we're missing in this when we think that way is we're missing one of the greatest joys of being a Christian is to be able to share the gospel with somebody and see their life change forever. And to know that God allowed you to take part in it. I, I told you last, I think it was two sermons ago, I told you about a friend named um, Ron and how I shared with him the gospel 18 years ago, right when I first got here, and then he comes up to me at Dollywood uh, a couple years ago, comes up behind me and grabs me and picks me up off the ground, scared the crud out of me. Um, and I turned around and I said, Ron! And he just looked at me, put his finger at me, perfect timing of God because I was pretty down in the dumps. And he said, your ministry changed my life. Not me, God, right? He said, the gospel changed my life, saved my family, saved my marriage. And I have been clean for 18 years because of the gospel. You see the power of the gospel to change lives? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
Stop making excuses. You know, because then we become just like Jonah. We become just like Jonah. You know, another simple way to share your faith, one way is if you're saying right now, I don't know how to, then come and we'll talk about it. Come to David. Come to one of the elders. We can talk to you about the gospel. But another simple way to share the gospel is to bring somebody to church. You know, I, I can't believe this statistic. 40%, 40% of Andersonians go to church. To me, that's terrible. You know, there's a church on every street corner. I mean, there's, I, I almost say, too many churches, right? That terrible thing. I can't believe I said that. Um, but meaning... I can't believe only 40% are going to church. Right? But guess what? Here's the, the glass half full mentality. That means 60% aren't going to church. And that means there's 60% of the people out there. I could do the math. I think there's around 40,000 now. It used to be 30, 40,000. That's 24,000 people in this town that are maybe willing to go to church with you. Wow! Think about that. Catch a vision of how large this field is that is ready for harvest. Well, Jonah didn't stop running, so we move to point three, which is Jonah's punishment. I used a P after David. Um, but really, chastisement would be a better word, okay? Um, Jonah's chastisement. Look at verses 4 through 9. It says this, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. Lighten it for them, sorry. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. He didn't fear him enough, did he, at this point? Here we see that God sends a storm of chastisement to spank his prophet, to get him to change his mind, right? And the Hebrew word here for sailors is salt. And it has a plural ending in the Hebrew. So it would be salty ones. Salty ones. Why do I tell you that? Because it tells you that these guys weren't rookies. They weren't rookie sailors. They were professional sailors. 
They had been in storms before. They had been in storms before. But this is the perfect storm. This is one that the ship, it says it right there, was about ready to break up. When you're in a storm and your ship is ready to break up, you are scared. And that's what these guys were. They were scared. They were filled with fear. Filled with fear. Now, I've never been on a storm at sea where I was filled with fear, uh, but I have been in fear before at sea. And it was with a group of guys from our church, 10 of us. And we went out from North Myrtle Beach on a fishing trip. And uh, we went that day, and it, we knew it was going to be rough. So the captain gave us the choice at the start. He said, do you guys really want to go? He said, it won't be too bad. And we all looked at each other and said, okay. Right? So we get going, and it gets a little bumpy. And he goes, ah, the captain, you know, he's, he's a salty one. He's a professional. He's going, ah, this is nothing. This is nothing. We're all looking at each other going, okay. So we keep going, and it gets bumpier and bumpier and bumpier to where finally we're all in the inside, in the cabin with the captain, you know, where we're not getting wet from the waves. Um, and the captain, you know, going like this. And one, at one point, you know, he kept going, ah, it's not bad. He falls over. Remember that? Yeah, he fell over. Hit the ground. The ways when we finally got out there were six to eight feet. I verified that with Joe. I'm not, this isn't a fish story here. The, the next part is. The waves were so big, I could have put my fishing pole up and grabbed the fish right out of the waves. That's a fish story. But they were bad. And here's the, here's the funny part. Here's the fear part. Everybody's eyes got really big, okay? Because we're all sitting around the captain. Captain falls over. You know, ah, this is nothing. You know, um, and, and he keeps driving. We're not out there yet. And then everybody's starting to get a little green, Except for uh, Ross Brown, he he fell asleep. He was sleeping. <laughs> Ross, you here? And the boat start kept rocking and all that. And then everybody got real quiet because Joe Noblet got up and walked out, and we knew what Joe was doing. And then we became really fearful. Guys, if you don't know Joe, Joe's a fisherman. He fishes all the time. So if Joe gets sick, everybody else is looking, thinking, we're about ready to get sick too, right? Six out of ten got sick. We still caught 300 pounds of fish. Okay? Great day. But um, I didn't get sick. That's why you say that. <laughs> but um, the, the, the thing is, guys, that was only six to eight foot. Waves. Can you imagine 30, 40, 50 foot waves? And your ship is about ready to break up? And when pagan sailors, listen to this, when pagan sailors start having a prayer meeting, you know you're in trouble. And when they start throwing stuff overboard, you might as well go to the lifeboats, right? Get your life jacket on. You're about ready to go down. And notice the contrast between the sailors and Jonah. 
Jonah is getting further and further away from God, and the sailors are getting closer and closer and closer to God. And look at the contrast between the sailors' fear and Jonah's lack of concern for himself or for anybody. It, it, it kind of reminds me of, well, let me say that later. So he goes below the deck and he goes to sleep. It's like he doesn't care. And then look at verse 6. What does the captain do? He goes and yells at Jonah. Get up! What are you doing sleeping? You know? And notice what he says. He says, pray to your God. Maybe at least he'll be concerned. What he's saying is, you're not concerned about anybody. But at least he'll be concerned, right? It kind of reminds me of the disciples when they were on the Sea of Galilee. Remember during that storm, uh, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and the, and the disciples are afraid for their lives. They think they're going to die. So what do they do? They do the same thing the captain did. They run back to Jesus and say, Don't you care that we're about ready to die? Aren't you concerned? It's the same thing. And what did Jesus do? He was concerned. Got up. Hush, be still. Flat. That's what we're about to see. So the captain rebukes Jonah. And then look at verses 9 and 10. What is Jonah's response? He says, I fear the Lord God who made the sea and dry land. I mean, it's, it seems kind of hollow coming from somebody who is running from God to say that I fear God, right? So I'm sure those guys weren't too impressed. But despite his sin, but despite his sin, God uses his words. God uses his words to impact the sailors forcefully, and they're terrified. They're terrified. Why? Because they realize that the God who made the sea is the same one who's in charge of this storm because of Jonah's sin. Look at verses 11 through 16. So they said to him, Why should we, what should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on the account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked Jonah up. They picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Here in this section, Jonah, despite his sins and rebellion, becomes an imminent type of Christ. You see, Jonah tells them, pick me up, throw me in the water, and, and the sea will become calm. So substitution will save sailors just as substitution saves sinners. This is the essential oil of the gospel. And what is the sailor's response? What's the sailor's response? 
Well, it's, it's quite admirable. What do they do, try to do? They try to save Jonah. They try to row to shore. They don't want to throw this guy overboard. They don't want him to die, right? And then they finally, they can't row to shore, so they finally said, God, don't hold us responsible for throwing this guy over, you know? Don't, don't you know, hold us innocent. So they throw him over, and what happens? Just like, just like on the Sea of Galilee. Boom, calm. Can you imagine that? Being in a hurricane, and then all of a sudden, it's flat like a lake. That's what happened. That's what happened. And you might be thinking, well, why didn't Jonah just swim back to the boat? They threw him overboard. Why didn't he just swim back to the boat? Well, look at verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a fish. Uh, the Hebrew word for fish here is dag. And um, it, it, it's basically a general word for fish. It doesn't tell you what type of fish. Okay? just says fish. And then in Matthew 12, Jesus says something about it. He says, he speaks about Jonah being in a large fish, and some translate the Hebrew to the Greek as whale, okay? As a whale. And that's where we get the idea that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. But that's a bad translation. It's a bad translation. Um, some think it could have been a dogfish. Some think it could have been a whale shark, which is a fish. It's not a mammal. But whatever fish it was, God works a mighty miracle to save his prophet. Now, not surprisingly enough, when people read this, and they get to verse you know, 17, that's when they want to close the book of Jonah. Most modern skeptics do, right? Um, but to doubt this story, listen to this, but to doubt this story is to doubt the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew 12, 40, he says this, that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. And if Jesus believed that this was a historical event, then we should too. We should too. When we look at chapter 2, we see the prayer of Jonah while he was in this fish. Um, and many of you have probably thought that this fish was part of God's chastisement of Jonah, but guess what? It wasn't. The fish was actually something that saved Jonah because guess what? Remember when I said they threw Jonah in the water and the water became calm? Why didn't he just swim back to the boat? Jonah couldn't swim. How do I know that? We'll know that in chapter 2, and I'll read it for you in a second. Jonah couldn't swim. That's why he needed this giant fish to come and save him. So this fish was his salvation. It wasn't part of the punishment, okay? Um, look, at, look at chapter 2. This is Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of this fish. 
And it says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of a fish, and he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all the breakers and the billows passed over me. Okay, so he's talking about going down. He's talking about drowning. Look at what he says further. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. So he's going down further and further. The great deeps engulfed me. Weeds wrapped around my head. So he starts having seaweed wrapping around his head as he's going deeper and deeper, right? And, and then he says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. He's thinking, I'm going pretty deep. The earth with its bars were all around me forever, but you have brought me up, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. He's saying, I'll do it, Lord. I'll do what you want me to do. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Who is the hero of this story? It's not Jonah. It's not the sailors. It's not even the great fish. The hero of this story is our God. The hero of this story is our God. He is the one who commands his prophet to go to Nineveh. He is the one who holds on to Jonah as he's running away from him. He is the one who saves pagan sailors. He is the one who can calm a storm at sea. He is the one who commands this giant fish to save his prophet, who commands the fish to release his servant. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and his glory is seen in Jonah and the great fish. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can see your glory, that you command the wind and the waves and the storms at sea, that you command all of your creatures on this earth, that you command your prophets, and that, Lord, that you are over us, your church. Lord, help us to be a people who want to follow you and follow you wholeheartedly. Help us to want to share the gospel with all around us, no matter who they are. Father, help us to even want to share the gospel with our enemies. Thank you, Lord, that we can't do that on our own, that we can only do it 
through your power. So, Lord, help us to pray for open doors. Open doors to share our faith with others. Lord, we praise you for the opportunities that you give us. We pray for our city and for our country. We just pray for your spirit to fall down upon us and bring revival to this land. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.